<laughs> I'll probably bail out before then. I'll need a meal. Awesome. So it's live now, so I will I'll go in and change things what I need to. But hello, everyone. I am Steve Hall from Revive Stronger, and I am very honored to have my man, Jeff Nippard, all the way from Canada. And uh, he is an incredible guy, not only for his achievements in bodybuilding, powerlifting, but just a bright and down-to-earth individual that I'm very, very happy to be interviewing. Um, so, if Jeff, if you just want to kind of go over a brief, kind of what got you into what you're doing, who you are, and uh, where you came from, essentially. Sure, man. Well, first of all, thanks for, for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for the kind intro. Um, so yeah, as, as for who I am, well, my name is Jeff Nippard. I'm a professional natural bodybuilder. I also compete as a powerlifter, as Steve said. Um, I have a bachelor's degree in biochemistry. Uh, I run a pretty popular uh, science-based uh, podcast on nutrition and training, where I conduct interviews with uh, experts in the, in the community. Um, I also run a YouTube channel, and I have a coaching business uh, that I run with my girlfriend, Robin Gallant, who is herself a, a bikini competitor and power lifter. Um, and we coach athletes really all around the world. Uh, we tend to appeal mostly to uh, people who have competitive goals, uh, so competitive bodybuilders and other physique athletes, um, and also power lifters. Um, and so that's essentially uh, what we do full time. Um, and then other than so Jeff, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I was just going to say, what got you into kind of the bodybuilding and powerlifting? What, where did it all spawn from? What was, where did it come? Yeah, so um, let me think. I've I've always had a athletic background. So I I basically I started with taekwondo when I was like four or five years old, um, and a lot of people say that's where my calves come from because like I was always like kind of bouncing when I was <laughs> training for martial arts, um, but really I think. The, the bodybuilding uh, side of things came from my mom and dad. Uh, so my dad is sort of like a recreational bodybuilder. He's been weight training since he was himself like 15 or something. Um, and my mom since she was 20. Uh, so they've both got like, I don't know, 20, 30 years of training experience. And growing up in that house, you know, they were training five, six days a week. Uh, and there was always like bodybuilding magazines around the house and that sort of thing. Um, so I was introduced to it at a very young age, um, but at first I was, I thought it was so weird. I was like, why does my dad like to look at photos of men in trunks and why is my mom cool with this? Uh, but after a while, I guess I, I started lifting when I was 15 because that was like the minimum age that you had to be in order to right. weight train at my local gym. Uh, so I started when I was 15. Uh, it was mostly like I had this ego where like I was an athlete and like I didn't care about my physique or anything like that. So like I wasn't attracted to it to make myself more muscular. Like I said, I was kind of like embarrassed by that. I thought it was weird. Um, but I wanted to train to improve my vertical jump for basketball. I was really into basketball at the time and uh, I wanted to be able to dunk, uh, which was a, <laughs> a pretty lofty goal for someone who was five four, five five at the time. Uh, but I did actually get to the point where I was able to dunk a volleyball and uh, I had a vertical leap of about 40 inches, which was, um, I guess, you know, good <laughs> uh, for me. Um, and so, 
I was just, just going to say it's interesting that it, bodybuilding totally is a really close kind of niche society. So we are all kind of, we see each other as completely normal, sane individuals. But then when kind of the other, the outsiders see in, they're kind of like, oh, it's all, it's a bit weird. Why? And they think it's very sexualized and odd and why do people want to do this? But if you're in a community within your household already, it kind of sets the, sets the playing field out there. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, people outside looking in do often think it's weird, but I think that people appreciate it. Like I always had an appreciation for like a nice muscular physique, you know what I mean? And I feel like people respect the the work and discipline that has to go into achieving a look like that regardless, even if they think it's like something that they wouldn't want to do themselves. Um, but yeah, basically, so from there, that was when I started weight training and uh, I, I would consider myself to be... Um, fairly genetically endowed so like my mom if you've ever seen photos of her I, i'll post about her every now and then on my instagram or facebook yeah. um and we're actually Sorry. planning a <laughs> we're, we're planning a workout together uh next week i think i'm visiting home again so uh you can stay tuned for that on my youtube um but she uh yeah she's just like she's far more jacked than i'll probably ever be <laughs> but um when i started lifting i i built muscle fairly easily and then there's nothing more motivating than progress, you know? Um, yeah. So I realized that I probably stood a better chance of being successful in bodybuilding than I did in basketball. And mm -hmm. at a certain point, you just have to recognize that, like, um, you have gifts and you should, you know, maximize on those. And so I sort of made the switch from being a basketball player uh, who trained with weights to a bodybuilder who played basketball on the side to just a bodybuilder. Um, and it was, I think when I was 18 that I decided to do my first bodybuilding competition. Uh, so I started prepping for that. And for the last seven years or so, I've done six bodybuilding contests since then I've turned pro wow. placed second at my first pro show. And I've done six or seven powerlifting meets, uh, in that time period as well. Uh, so I've really turned it into like a lifestyle and a career and, uh, it's something that I just continue to be extremely passionate about. Yeah, 100%. I think a lot of people, and even myself personally, we get into bodybuilding, powerlifting, or at least just strength training. But actually to compete as many times as you have is very impressive because I know personally I've only competed in the one bodybuilding show and one powerlifting meet so far. I haven't been training years and I haven't been training intelligently for years. So I'm excited to kind of get into that more so and develop it. And the science is incredible. And I watch your podcast and the people you get on and they talk about it. And it, it is exciting. Um, so when you talk about kind of where you've come from in terms of kind of you trained alongside basketball, when you did get into your weight training, what did it look like? Were you getting tips from your parents or how did you educate yourself in that or did you just wing it? Uh, no, well, I mean, my dad was brought up in uh, the bodybuilding magazine culture. So you probably have some idea of what those workouts look like, but it's typically, a, you know, your classic bro body part split uh, so it would be like Monday was chest Tuesday was back Wednesday was legs Thursday was shoulders and abs uh, Friday what was Friday I don't know whatever's left maybe that's it the rest day and then repeat um, but uh, yeah so that was basically how I was introduced into it um, and I continued with that basically up until my first show uh, just because back then there was no 
science of bodybuilding really like it was just what you read in magazines um, at least i wasn't aware of it like there might have been some people doing that work in like a very obscure niche corner of the internet somewhere but i just wasn't close to that at all um so mm -hmm. yeah very much brought up within the the bro culture and uh i i still feel like somewhat nostalgic towards those roots today i mean that was mm -hmm. what made me fall in love with the process and everything. And that was what my parents had success with throughout their entire lifting careers and everything. Um, so yeah, those are my roots. And then in terms of nutrition, did you kind of have any kind of idea what you were doing with that? Or was it all kind of the old school methods there as well, just kind of eating big to get big, eating loads of protein, <laughs> small, small frequent meals, all of that, did that happen as well? Oh man, um, now that I think of it, when I first started, I didn't, like I said, I wasn't doing it to improve my physique, so I didn't really care about mm -hmm. my diet, so I just ate like a normal kid, like I would have pizza pops for lunch and like Eggos for breakfast, you know, like I didn't really pay much attention to it until I would say when I got into high school, um, yeah, like later in high school, that was when I started supplementing like weight gainer shakes uh, and I started following a diet plan that I found in a muscle and fitness magazine that was basically like a clean diet, but it, I think had me in a caloric surplus, um, at least enough to, to gain some muscle. Um, but I was never, I was never, uh, under the impression that it was a good idea to eat as much as I could to get big or whatever. Like I never got sloppy just because I was, I was like a very dogmatic clean eater all like always because my, my parents were too. Um, yeah. so, like we ate healthy. I mean, b before I got into it, I was, I, I had a pretty junk diet, but once I got into bodybuilding and wanted to improve my physique, it was at that point that I started like eating high protein, uh, complex carbs, uh, stereotypical bodybuilder type mm -hmm. diet. Um, so for your first contest prep, did you know kind of you needed the calorie deficit, you needed your protein high? Did you know all that or was it a kind of a it was a it was a bro diet. Like I can tell you exactly what it was. It was like egg whites in the morning, oatmeal, then like a uh, protein shake uh, with a plum, um, and then just like chicken and broccoli or chicken and rice meals from there until you go to bed. And it was basically that for twelve weeks. And then when the show date arrived, you cut your water and got on stage. And that's <laughs> really all there was to it. I don't think I thought a lot about caloric deficit or total daily protein or anything like that. Uh, I just had a friend who was really jacked and he apparently knew how to get people on stage. So I sort of trusted what he did. You know, I didn't yeah. always have the sort of skeptical reflective mind that I think I have now. And mm -hmm. at that point I was really just starting my education in science. Uh, so really it wasn't even a consideration for me. It was sort of like, you know, this is what worked for them. So hopefully it works for me. Awesome. And in the time kind of, so you've been lifting since 15 and how old are you now? You're, you're still 25. only, yeah, 20, 25. So same as me or I think I might be a year ahead. Are you 26 this year? Yeah. yeah. 26 yeah. in October. Oh, awesome. We're the same. Um, yeah. 1990 here as well. So I, I mean, similar to you, I started 15 years old when we were allowed to start lifting, but I don't think I was genetically endowed like yourself. When I started, I didn't really see a great deal of changes. I mean, I hate putting things towards genetics, but we can't, like, they play a massive role. We can't really um, say anything about that. But um, I think 
from there onwards, the nutritional side changed the game for me. Um, you probably had a better background than I did having your parents there, whereas I was just, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. Um, I thought protein shakes post-workout were literally the secret to a game. And <laughs> I, used to, I can remember going back and taking a protein shake after my workout in the toilet away from my friends because I was like, I want to gain more muscle than them. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm so glad the scientific kind of era into modern bodybuilding has come out so we can actually help people progress much faster. Um, so it, today, do you use any kind of nutritional periodization approaches? Kind of, do you go through gaining phases and cutting phases, maintenance phases even? Do you use any of that? Um, so yeah, maybe I'll get you to like flesh out what, what you mean by the term nutritional periodization. Cause like that, that sounds to be like a new term to me. And mm -hmm. my hesitation with it is that, is this just a buzzword that the evidence-based community is using now to promote some sort of new uh, catch-all term or whatever. Um, so do I use nutritional periodization? Like, I, I guess so. Um, you know, I have phases where uh, I'm focusing on building muscle and then I have phases where I'm focusing on trimming fat. Uh, but that, that just sounds like, you know, standard diet planning to me. Um, yeah. So I think that the term in the literature, I haven't really seen it, uh, but if if it does apply, I would say it would be more so to um, athletes who, uh, endurance athletes and those those sort of situations. For bodybuilders, I think it's it's actually pretty simple. Like you just need to have adequate protein and you need to train hard. Uh, I don't think that uh, periodizing nutrition really is like the most, it would be one of the most important things, unless you're going to construe it so broadly to mean any sort of organization of the diet at all. In which case, of course, I think that if you're especially a competitive bodybuilder or just someone who wants to bring the best physique that they can, then you're, it's, it's best to set it up where you have a period of time where you're focused on building muscle and then another period of time where you're focused on trimming fat and maintaining muscle. But the differences mm -hmm. between those two are really just a, a surplus versus a deficit because I think that protein yeah. requirements don't really change. They should be at least moderate to high always um, if your goal is to build or maintain mm -hmm. muscle. Um, and then so the only thing changing really is whether you're in a, in a net surplus or a net deficit. So that would be the only situation where I would apply nutritional periodization. If you want to look within the, the week itself, then uh, yeah, I think that having a nonlinear approach to caloric intake and having refeeds or diet breaks, that sort of thing is also important. Mm -hmm. So is, is that kind of what you, yeah, you would get from that term? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, completely. I guess nutritional periodization is just basically just like training periodization it's planning phases at which you focus on doing different things rather than which comes on to my next question is i think for a lot of newer lifters kind of intermediates who are struggling to get to advanced or progress is because they're trying to do too many things at once and they're focusing on trying to gain fat uh gain fat gain muscle, um, drop fat at the same time, and they're just, it's not working for them because it's in reality a very difficult thing to do, especially for someone who's been lifting. So when you think of intermediate or even kind of 
semi-advanced lifters, what do you think limit them in terms of progressing further into a kind of, there's a few guys, I mean, when you go into like a commercial gym, you see quite a lot of guys who are reasonably kind of, they're reasonably muscular, but there's a rare few who have kind of taken it that step further, probably like yourself, um, who are that much more muscular. What do you think separates them? Is it genetics? Is it time under the bar? Is it just not doing the right things? Well, those are, those are definitely two big ones. Like, I feel like some people, uh, everyone has, I, I would see it as a genetic cap. It's probably more of like an asymptote. So like it slows, your progression is going to naturally slow down, but it might never reach the point where it's like dead flat. Um, so yeah, genetics play a big, big, huge, huge role in separating different physiques. Uh, but at the same time, you always see people who started out as either very skinny or very overweight and have drastically transformed their physiques over time. So I wouldn't let that be a mental limitation or a block for you in, in terms of wanting to progress further. Uh, but you just have to acknowledge that it's no sense in comparing your physique to the next guy at the gym because you guys are just, you just don't know anything about his history and his genetics and so on. Mm -hmm. um, time under the bar or, or training age is another big one. So just take myself, for example, I've been training for over a decade now with at least half decent um, protocols. Uh, I've always been a hard worker. At least I've always been dedicated to my diet as long as I've cared about it. Uh, so that's another big thing. If you've only been training for two years, you're, you might be eight years behind the guy who you're comparing yourself to. Mm -hmm. uh, but in terms of what it is that holds intermediate, intermediate and advanced guys uh, back, I guess the most common thing that I would see would be um, no real structure, no real goal setting. They just come into the gym and do whatever. So if it's a, a push day or whatever, they do this machine one week, they do the, I don't know, hammer strength press machine. The next week they're bench pressing. The next week mm -hmm. they're pre exhausting with cable flies and there's no real structure to their training and there's no real direction to their training. Uh, so that would be a really common one. Um, but then on the, on the other side of that coin, there's the crowd who is uber, uber focused on their progression and making baby steps to the point that I feel like they might forget how to just work hard. And yeah. I think that a lot of people maybe aren't putting in the effort that they actually need to, to get to that next level. And uh, a lot of people are quick to, you know, blame their genetics or blame the fact that everyone else is using steroids and they're not or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, but people don't realize that in order to get to the advanced level, you really, really do have to put in that effort. And it isn't just time, like over time, if you're just doing the same stuff that you've been doing, then time isn't going to do anything for you. It has to be time 100%. plus effort, right? Uh, so yeah, I think that more people will get to that advanced level and get to that physique that they want if they would just be more willing to really grind out some tough sets and really go through some mm -hmm. workouts that are, are really grueling and, and difficult. That isn't to say you need to do that all the time, but I definitely think that there should be a place in everyone's overall programming for, for that sort of stuff. And yeah, I think that's really important. I guess as we get more advanced in our training age, we know kind of Mark Crypto has his 
kind of people progress session to session, week to week, and then kind of month to month, and then it could be even further than that. So we know that when you're getting fairly advanced, you need to build up a stress over kind of a month period of time and really, really take your body beyond where it can go. Because if you don't kind of breach homeostasis, you will remain the same. You need to challenge the body and put it into a kind of a programmed structure, not just, oh, I'm going to really push it hard on this this time, really hard on this another time in different weeks. It just doesn't work like that. You kind of need to have a, a structure and then progress with that structure. Completely, I agree with that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you nailed it. And if you have both of those things in place, I think you've got a good recipe for success. Um, and, and another quick thing that I think is really important here is the psychological aspect. Uh, so people can become complacent if they haven't set goals for themselves. And when you get to that intermediate advanced level, so when you get to that point where progress is really starting to kind of level off a little bit, it can be really psychologically demotivating to not see those visual changes anymore. And so uh, for that reason, I think it's a good idea to have some sort of objective measurement for gauging your progress. Uh, so this is part of the reason why I turned to powerlifting in my off season, because it allows me to psychologically identify with something on paper. It's like, I've reached a 500 pound squat, mm -hmm. that matters. And I'm gonna be able to you know, do more volume as a result of this. I'm gonna improve my physique as a result of this. And it's very much tied together with what you're doing in bodybuilding anyway, insofar as you, know, you are weight training and you are working towards something. Uh, so it doesn't have to be powerlifting, but you need to find some way to keep yourself motivated and in it for the long haul because once you get to that sort mm -hmm. of like inflection point where it starts to level off, uh, it can be a psychological battle to really keep putting in that effort because you can put in more and more and more effort, but you're not going to get more and more and more returns. They're going to be diminishing regardless. Mm -hmm. uh, so you just have to be prepared for that and have some sort of psychological strategy in place to overcome it. And I guess that's why a lot of kind of the bodybuilders, especially natural bodybuilders, you see kind of 3MJ and all of those, once they have got to that kind of pretty advanced level, they then do often take up powerlifting as kind of an off-season thing to do to keep them motivated, keep them going, keep them ticking over. Do you ever find kind of that people can be kind of they stop their own progress by focusing too much on the powerlifting, too much on the weight on the bar, too much on strength, and then they let their actual kind of hypertrophy training take a backseat and they don't see as many gains as they potentially could see. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I see that quite a lot. And um, yeah, I think that there's been this backlash in the evidence-based or science-based community uh, against people who say, oh, powerlifting is going to ruin your physique. And it's like, well, look at me, powerlifting didn't ruin my physique. But it's also important, mm -hmm. important to consider how you built that physique. And most people who are switching to powerlifting didn't build their physique by powerlifting. And it takes, a lot, it takes a lot less to maintain a physique that's been built over 10 years of, of training, of hypertrophy-centric training uh, with a powerlifting program than it would be for someone who's brand new to get into powerlifting and build that same physique. Like, it's, it's mm -hmm. apples and oranges, right? Um, so I think that for people who are looking to primarily to build a very impressive physique, uh, I don't think that a powerlifting program would be the way to go. Uh, certainly, you can incorporate the power lifts into your training, uh, but if you want proportional development, then the power lifts just simply aren't going to do it.
Mm -hmm. right? uh, so I do think that you can become too focused on it. As for advanced guys uh, becoming too focused on powerlifting, um, past a certain point, I would say that uh, the um, the muscle is sort of there, and so, like I said, it takes less to to keep the muscle than to build it to begin with. Um, so I, I don't know if it's as much of a concern, but if it goes on for too long, then things like the biceps, side delts, uh, even rear delts, like powerlifters often have this like very rolled forward posture. Um, mm -hmm. Even the lats, like certain muscles just aren't getting enough of a direct stimulus, I think, yeah. to keep them hanging around. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm sort of in the middle on the powerlifting for bodybuilding thing. I think it has its uses and its application, but I think that if you want to build the best physique possible, then you shouldn't just be a strict powerlifter now. Yeah, I understand that. I think it's becoming, I think it's difficult because I see a lot of younger guys who are looking up to these older lifters, like even like yourself, who yeah. are doing kind of periods where they're focusing on powerlifting and then they could get necessary kind of too concentrated on the power lifts when they haven't even developed the muscle mass behind it yet. And it's kind of, they're not seeing the progress that they necessarily should or want to see. And they're more just kind of hoping that by following what the big guys are doing, they're going to get big. But like you said, you have to look at what people have taken to get to that point, not what they're doing right now. It's kind of irrelevant what they're doing now. You have to look at what they're doing 10 years ago. So yeah, exactly. um, I think that's a really important point that you brought up. Well, just to give you some context, so then in terms of, sorry, I, I was just going to quickly elaborate on that. Like just as a, a personal anecdote, I, I trained for, uh, about six or seven years strictly bodybuilding before I picked up any powerlifting. Um, and since I've picked up powerlifting, my stage weight hasn't changed. Uh, so it's, it's not, you know, it, it's, it's not a panacea. It's not going to, give you an insane amount of, of muscle growth magically or anything like that, obviously. But, uh, yeah, you just have to have realistic expectations when you're, um, when you're powerlifting. Totally. Cause I mean, a lot of strength gains are neurological. So we know that as when we first go into the gym, we get stronger very, very quickly. We're not gaining tons and tons of muscle. Um, so people need to realize that strength training is great for bodybuilding, but it shouldn't be kind of the be all and end all focus. So in terms of your bodybuilding and kind of gaining size stuff, what do you call your kind of bread and butter? What are your go-tos for gaining size in terms of kind of programming, in terms of exercises? Um, that's a really broad question. Are we, are we talking about uh, what level? Like, are we talking about new guys or? <laughs> I guess for let's let's do it for yourself what would you say for you is kind of the rep ranges you kind of tend towards in terms of what's your kind of go-to for building as much size as possible or you you may well answer this that there is no particular rep range that you hover around you find that you need a mix of everything and that's what works for you yeah, I think the research is pretty clear that uh, having a variety of rep ranges is probably best. Uh, so there are basically 
three, it's debatable, but probably three uh, determinants of hypertrophy or, or drivers of muscle growth. Um, you're probably familiar with this, but uh, mechanical tension, muscle damage, and metabolic stress. Uh, so mechanical tension is probably best optimized somewhere in the, I don't know, 6 to 12 rep range. Um, metabolic stress is probably best optimized something over 15 reps, so say 15 to 30 reps. Um, and then also, I think there is some room for pure strength training, so say something under six reps. Uh, so I util utilize all of those, uh, but the bulk of my training volume is going to come within that sort of six to 12 rep range. Um, and like we already sort of alluded to, I tend to have like a core of movements that I'll stick with for one to three months, um, and I'll work on those in a specific rep range. Uh, so just as an example, right now, I'm doing chest-supported uh, T-bar rows for my back, and I'm working within a six to eight rep range. And uh, I'll keep going with that and either aiming to add a rep or some weight uh, over time until I get to the point where I decide that I'm going to switch up and do a different movement. Um, in the mm -hmm. past, I've always kept those core movements as the big three. So like the squats, bench press, and deadlifts are always in there, and those never change. Um, but lately, uh, I've mm -hmm. had to work around some injuries and that sort of thing. And I do also like to be a little bit more flexible with my training. I do think that that's important, uh, especially for me psychologically. Uh, so I'll, I'll switch those out from block to block uh, as I see appropriate. Um, but I definitely think that having some core of movements that you progress with as you go along uh, is important and sticking to the, that, whatever rep range you decide on, just stick to it and progress within it uh, is basically how mm -hmm. I do it. But in terms of a, a rep range, uh, I don't have one. Usually I'm working six to 12, but I definitely do my fair share of pump work like 20 to 30 rep sets. Um, lately, not so much strength stuff, but when I'm doing more of a powerlifting centered approach, uh, there will be plenty of stuff below six reps and that will come mm -hmm. either in the form of pure strength work. So say something around 80% of my one rep max, uh, but also in the form of technique work, which I think is controversial from a bodybuilding perspective. Uh, but technique work, basically you're working in like one to four reps with relatively light load. So say like 65 to 75% of your one rep max. And the goal is to really just maximize the efficiency of your movement. Um, basically just make the lift as technically efficient as possible. Um, and also move the bar with as much speed as possible. And uh, I think that as a bodybuilder, speed work probably isn't the the best use of your time. But if you're like me and also have some powerlifting related goals, then uh, it's certainly not going to hurt. Yeah, I think there's always the case of specificity kind of comes at the top. But if you do have, if your specific goals are to be quite good at building and powerlifting, then you kind of have to give and take a little bit there. Maybe you just become more specific on, on one area and another area at different times. Like right now, you're more specific towards bodybuilding, but you're never going to leave your powerlifting roots behind. And the same when you get into your powerlifting. So that makes sense. And then with your 612 sort of work, do you put in that metabolic type work as well, the higher rep work in the same week, or do you move that at a different time? Or Yeah, I, I usually do it in the same day. 
So mm-hmm. I, I'll usually do some sort of metabolic stress work every training day. Awesome. Yeah. And, I, I, think uh, be, so I think it would be weird to like... finishing on some questions. Sorry. I, I was going to say, I think it would be weird to just like have one day where you just do metabolic stress work. I don't know. I, fe- I feel like I prefer to put that at the end because you're not using really heavy weights um, and it feels good to finish off a workout with some high rep stuff. Mm-hmm. No, it makes, it makes sense from that standpoint to myself as well. And I think I'd struggle going through a whole session doing lots of yeah. pump work. It would kind of feel that I'd feel without getting any heavy weight on me. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So just to finish on kind of my questions, I find a lot of the time with my own, cause I'm like yourself, I have an online coaching business and quite often I look at the science like yourself with evidence-based practitioners or science-based practitioners. But then at the end of the day, what's optimal on paper to very different things. And I think a lot of people out in kind of, kind of people looking in towards us, trying to find out what they should do. They try and seek optimality and then end up falling off and not actually getting what they want. Whereas they should be looking at something maybe more sustainable. Do you find with your clients, I know a lot of them are competitive, so maybe they can edge towards the more optimal approach. What do you tend to, to find? I mean, yeah, I think that there's always a balance to be struck between what is best on paper, like you said, and what is best in the field. Um, and I guess this is sort of where you have to have uh, the coach's intuition and um, sort of see what is best on a per client basis. But I think that the evidence should um, inform us insofar as it it allows us to sort of guide our practices. But when it comes down to making specific recommendations, I don't think you can just take the results of a paper and be like, you need to do this because this was the result of this paper. There's just so many other things that go into it. And so I think that an evidence-based approach should reasonably account for all of the available evidence. But when in terms of like making actual real world recommendations, um, you also really need to take into account the the specific individual's preferences and goals and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I think that the best, the best coaching approach is uh, going to, it's going to take into account all the evidence, but it's not going to be limited to the evidence, if that makes sense. No, 100%. I agree. I think even with the evidence, there's always limitations to it. There's only a certain number of people within the studies anyway, so the person you're dealing with isn't necessarily exactly like those other people. And there's outliers, and the yeah. studies represent an average in general. So I think a lot of the time people need to make sure that when they are doing things for themselves, really take into account that they are an individual. They are different. They can't they don't have to follow the most optimal way if they can't themselves do it. So um, I think, yeah, that's kind of where the art of coaching comes in, which I'm sure you have down to a T with all your clients. So that's great. And then finally, just where do you see yourself and your business in five years time? If it might be quite a challenging question, because if someone asked me this right off the bat, I'd probably be like, Oh, but um, (laughs) maybe you've had a little bit. Um, Well, yeah, I mean, 
I definitely would like to establish myself more as a uh, elite level contest prep coach. Uh, so I do still work with um, a lot of general population people who are fantastic to work with, mm -hmm. uh, who have the goal of, you know, wanting to build muscle, gain strength, that sort of thing. Um, and typically these are very highly motivated people that I, that I work with. Um, so I'm lucky to be able to work with, uh, people like that. Uh, but I do think that, um, I, I, my, my specific skills are probably best served, um, toward the, the bodybuilding community. Um, so I would like to grow in that sense, uh, as far as coaching goes. Uh, but I think that really, um, at this point I'm sort of at a, a limit where I, I'm not able to really take on. Uh, more clients in terms of number. Uh, so in order for me to be able to reach more people, I think I want to be able to put out um, more uh, widespread programs or more, uh, say, generic programs uh, that can be periodized towards people who are, who have the um, just general goal of building muscle, gaining strength or whatever. And that's something that I'm hoping to do this year or next year. Uh, in, ter in terms of myself, I think um, I have goals of growing my own personal YouTube and, and podcast and that sort of thing. So I definitely do see that growing over the next five years. As for where it'll end up is is tough to say, but um, just going to keep keep doing it, you know, day by day. And it, when it's something that you love, I think it really can only go up as long as you yeah. keep at it. That sounds great. I think it's it's in the same way bodybuilding is one of those things you just have to keep working on. It's same with your business. You just have to keep showing up day in, day out, doing the work and it it will pay off as you like you want to reach more people, you want to help more people, those core grounding principles are gonna help you. So that's really cool. Um so now on to my questions are done. So thank you very much for answering those. Took a lot away from it. I'm sure everyone else did as well. Um, got sure. some questions from the audience. So, start off with Cal Rawlings, who asks. Cal's uh, a client of mine. Oh, is he? Yeah, yeah. Ah. He's a he's a, a teen bodybuilder and teen classic physique competitor. Uh, we did three shows um, this year, and he uh, he killed all three of them. <laughs> Took home like six trophies or something crazy, like between all the shows. So anyway. So he's got a bright future ahead of him. So yeah, yeah, for sure. He's already in a great place. Um, so yeah, what, what do you wish you'd done differently? Um, and what would you give to younger bodybuilders? What sort of advice would you give to them? Uh, what do I wish I'd done, what I did differently? Um, I, I would say, like, I don't think I would necessarily change anything I did just because I'm, I'm pleased with where I ended up, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah. So I, I feel like anything that I like, quote unquote, regret about my training or whatever um, doesn't really make sense because I was going to do what I was going to do and I ended up where I ended up and I'm happy with that. So I don't look back at what I did and I was like, oh, shit, like if I had just not done that stupid bro split for three years. I could have so much more muscle right now. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's, it's all a process. And so I think that like, just not focusing on the past, probably the wisest approach. But if, if I had to say anything, it wouldn't, it would probably be the fact that I spent 
so much time and energy worrying about stuff that didn't matter. Like when I first started, especially when I first started prepping with bodybuilding, like I thought that timing was everything. Like my post-workout meal had to be like on the money, like as soon as I finished my last set. And the longer you wait, the worse it, the worse it is, the, the less you get out of that workout. Um, I thought that all of my meals had to be timed perfectly. Like my, my breakfast had to be at 7 a.m. And if it was at 7.15 a.m., I was late. Like, that was bad, you know? And I, I was insanely dedicated to that schedule to the point that, like, I was eating meals of chicken and broccoli out of Tupperware, like, in the middle of lectures in university. And not that there's anything wrong with that. Like, you know, if, if people have to get their meal in, you have to get your meal in. But it was just on principle for me that I thought it was so important that if I breached the three-hour window between meals, then I was... I was going catabolic and I was going to lose muscle and uh, it was just some some things that just really make no difference, uh, especially in the grand scheme of things and occupy so much of your, your mental effort that uh, I probably could have spent more time doing things that I wanted to do uh, rather than focusing on that. So the reason I say I, I don't know if I would do it differently is because at that point in time, I was a full-time student taking five courses. I was in school like nine to five every day. Then I would train from six to seven. Then I would eat my meal, go home, do any work that I had to do for that night. Uh, I was working a part-time job then as well. And then I would be in bed by 10. And I think that having that structure helped me really learn how to use my time efficiently if that makes sense. And so those habits that I built as a result of those like bro preps, I think I've transferred over into my current life to actually be productive. Um, but if I was going to give advice to a young guy, I would be like, just focus on hitting your total daily macronutrients, get your training in, get your cardio in for the week. And like anything else doesn't matter too much. Like go enjoy your life, like have a social mm -hmm. life and that sort of thing. Because when I was in university, I didn't really have much of a social life. Like I was a bodybuilder. I competed pretty much every year. And it was it was just all about bodybuilding, you know. And I've been very successful as a bodybuilder as a result. But I think I could have been just as successful if I had just focused more so on the things that really matter, you know, your macros and uh, progressing in the gym. I agree. I think that's... For me, when I discovered kind of the, the fact it could be so much more flexible and simple than what it, it was more so the nutrition than anything, because I think anyone who gets into bodybuilding, they love the gym and it's yeah. not a problem. Uh, so it's, once you realize nutrition can be so much more flexible, it then becomes a lifestyle that you can actually enjoy to live rather than kind of yeah. bodybuilding kind of dominating your life. So yeah, yeah I think yeah. that's a great point. Um, so Cal also asks... What's your take on, I think this is Lane Norton's avatar nutrition program, which is automating your nutrition um, using a flexible dieting approach. What do you think are the, the limitations and drawbacks? Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't have anything against it. Like I, like I said earlier, like I feel like I can reach more people with a generic program than I can with one-on-one -on -one coaching. And if people, if you have two people who have the same basic needs, they have the same basic training history and the same basic goals that can be outlined up front, then they're both going to do very well on the same basic program, right? Uh, so I think that 
I would be able to reach more people with something like that than with the one-on-one -on -one coaching, um, which of course is more individualized and more personable and that sort of thing. So there are benefits to it, obviously. Uh, but I think that doing those sort of generic things is a way to reach more people. And so that's the positive. The drawback, of course, is each person can have their own unique considerations and that sort of stuff just gets missed with things like that, I think. Um, so I, I don't actually know how it is that Lane is set up Avatar Nutrition, but I don't have anything against it on principle. Um, but if it, if it were me, I would only use something like that if you were really financially constrained, uh, just because I don't know if you can plug in a formula. Like I'll deal with two guys who are 165 pounds and one guy might have to diet on, I don't know, 2000 calories. The other guy might be able to diet on 3000 calories. And I just, I just don't know how you'd get around that with a, uh, mm -hmm. with a calculator, but maybe, maybe he has it based on like, if you lose this much, then increase by this much sort of thing, like the first week. And then it, it calibrates as you go along. Um, but I don't know, it'd be, it'll, because it's so new, I guess it'll be interesting to see how many people actually have success with it. But as mm -hmm. you, you yourself know, a big part of online coaching is just accountability. Like it's just having someone that you trust to take over your diet. And if you just have a app in your phone that tells you to hit these macros, it's basically all up here. And if you don't have that extra bit of accountability, maybe you won't stick to it as well. So yep. I'm skeptical about it from an individualization standpoint and from an adherence standpoint. Uh, but for people who are like pretty um, prototypical when it comes to like their needs and goals and, you know, don't have anything like super unique or special and who are self-motivated and dedicated, then yeah, it can probably be a useful learning tool. But setting up macros is so simple. Like there's no reason why you, can't, like, why you can't just look up the information online and figure it out and do some trial and error yeah. and figure it out on your own anyway. But then again, like the MyFitnessPal app is super useful. And uh, if some people are, you know, motivated by Lane and want specific recommendations that come from him, then could be a, you know, useful thing. What do you, what do you think, think about it? I, yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I think there are, if they do use a calculation, they need to at least do an extent, at least to kind of identify what a person's need is maybe because that's a huge contributor to different calorie intakes. Yeah. Um, but then you don't know, even you need to kind of know their dietary background, where they've come from, where they are mm. right now in terms of body weight. And it's, I think it's, it's almost something that can't be automated. It's like personal training can't really be automated. You need, you say, right, you need that accountability. You also need someone to kind of come to if you've got questions or concerns. This is why even I coach a lot of personal trainers because they need someone to ask questions, to give yeah. them accountability and support um, because an app can't do that. It might be able to kind of buzz you saying you haven't logged in today like MyFitnessPal does, but I think mm. that's not enough. Um, and to trust an app with your nutrition, which is a big part of your life, it just seems, I don't know if mm. it is an app, but a calculation, it just seems a bit kind of difficult. And also I think, Another point would be a lack of education, which is yeah. what are kind of the downside to a lot of traditional diets anyway. 
Mm. And you can basically, like you said, get all the information online. I mean, you've probably talked about it on your podcast or somewhere. And I've yeah. got articles on my website that basically tell people exactly what to do and how to do it themselves. Uh, so it'll be, like you say, it'll be interesting how it pans out. Yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting because like the MyFitnessPal recommendations, like when you sign up for MyFitnessPal and you're like, I want to lose weight, the macros that they give you are garbage. Like I don't even know oh, yeah. what they're basing those on. So I'm thinking that if Lane has done a better job of, you know, setting up protein requirements and uh, he it, it's somehow calibrated as you go along. So like if you drop four pounds the first week, the app tells you to add 500 calories back in or something like this. I would say it's a definitely a step up from what people have now, which is my fitness power, nothing as far as I know. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I think, I, I don't know, I feel like people maybe could learn from it as you, as you go along. I don't know what, I, I haven't seen the app, so I don't know, but I could imagine that you could plug in little things like little tidbits of info as you go along and explain to you why this change happened and explaining to them this is evidence that their NEAT might be high for someone of their body weight or something like that. I mean, it could work mm -hmm. because, as you know, online coaching can not always be affordable. And so something like that might be a useful option for people who maybe aren't quite so self-sufficient to sit down and listen to a 90-minute podcast of mine or even know how to seek mm -hmm. out the right information online. It's like I follow Lane. Lane is a smart guy. Here's an app he has put out. It's like 10 bucks a month or whatever it is might be worth it for that person, right? So that's why I say I don't have anything against it on principle, but at the same time, it obviously has its limitations, like you said, yeah. Yeah, I think to have something against it would be almost wrong because it is pushing what we both want to kind of happen and it is more of a, a better way to diet. So it's better than a lot of things that are out there. So yeah, exactly. from that point of view. Yeah. So next question from Mickey Borg. Uh, it basically boils down to do you do any mobility work yourself and if you already have good mobility do you feel like there's a, a lot of need for kind of a lot of stretching foam rolling or do you think maybe just going through the main compound movements full range of motion would be su sufficient um yeah I, I definitely think that a lot of people overdo it with the mobility work and i think that a lot of people are under the impression that mobility work is going to help with their pain or their injury or whatever. And it often doesn't like if you're injured, you should just go see a specialist on that and get treated for it. Right. Period. Like doing a half hour of foam rolling and like a bunch of banded stretches and all this sort of stuff is just shooting in the dark. Like you have no idea really um, what the issue is unless you've gotten a diagnosis. I mean, you might have some idea, but who's to say that that is the proper course of action. Right. Um, so I think mobility works a little bit, overrated unless you have a specific mobility deficiency i guess so like for example if you have difficulty uh reaching depth on squat on the squat or like you're always up on your toes then it could be that you know your calves are tight you might want to do some specific calf stretching uh that sort of thing um me personally i have never had any difficulty getting into the positions that i need to get into for my sport which is powerlifting it's like the simplest sport of all time. You just, you know, have three lifts and they're pretty easy to do when you have a skeleton like mine, super short, super, super short femurs, super, super short arms. Um, so yeah, I've never, I've never had any really like serious mobility issues. Um, my experience with mobility 
uh, has been that uh, I do tend to get really tight adductors, um, and that prevents me from getting into uh, a wider stance on a sumo deadlift. Uh, so when I was preparing for the Canadian Nationals in 2014, which was what I would consider to be the peak of my powerlifting career, um, I was hitting like a 500 squat, 350 bench, 550 deadlift at 163 pounds. And um, I found that widening my stance on the sumo deadlift made a huge, huge difference for me. And I was never able to really get down into position with the wide stance until I started incorporating some, some stretches for my groin and adductors. And uh, I actually broke the rule and did all that stretching before training. Um, and, you know, typically you hear that like static stretching. If you static stretch before your training, your like strength is going to go to shit and all that. I, I didn't notice any of that whatsoever. And I think that the research shows that as long as you have some sort of dynamic st stretch or session after you do the static stuff, then the effect is totally negated. And the effect is only there if you're stretching for like a solid like minute hold on each stretch or something like that. So people have blown this way out of proportion. Like you do one simple like hamstring stretch for like a 15 second hold, all of a sudden like your squat strength is toast. That's that's not the way it works. Um, so what I did is I made, I made that a priority so I knew it was an issue uh, for me to get wide enough on the sumo deadlift. So I did my groin and adductor stretches for about 15 minutes before training because I knew that after training I wasn't going to feel like doing it. I, I probably wouldn't make it a priority. So if it, if it is a priority for you to do your mobility work or whatever, then feel free to do it at the beginning of the session because I think that the, the priority principle would trump in that, set, in, in, in that situation. Um, but yeah, basically I just, before training now, will do a five to 10 minute uh, warm up on the bike or elliptical or Stairmaster or whatever, just to get the body temperature up and uh, get the, the heart rate up, which I think is the most important thing from an injury prevention standpoint and a performance standpoint. And then also from a psychological standpoint, like oftentimes I'm working at my computer for, I don't know, five or six hours, then I eat a meal, then I go to the gym. I can be psychologically still in a place where like, I feel like I'm still kind of in work mode and I haven't gotten into that state where I feel ready to hit a hard workout. But when I get warmed up on the, on the elliptical or the Stairmaster or whatever, and I start sweating and the endorphins start going, now suddenly I feel psychologically a lot more ready to take on that training session. Mm -hmm. And I think that that could be maybe even the biggest benefit of the warm up is that you, you don't want to just jump right into it. Like um, psychologically, you'll probably feel better if you get a little sweat going and get your heart rate up. So I, I almost never skip on that. Um, and then after that, I'll, I'll take the I'll take the muscles through their full range of motion with a bunch of dynamic stretches. I've shown it on my YouTube channel, but for lower body, it's like um, dynamic leg swings back and forth across the body. I do step throughs. So like, I, I don't know, I like, it's like a crawling, like as if you're like in a crawl space and you like crawl up sort of thing, do like side to side, um, lying leg swings, uh, just basic stuff like that. Uh, and for upper body, it's similar, like, 
arm swings, you're just taking the, the muscles, like I said, through the range of motion. And then before you begin your actual working sets, you want to do a specific warm up. So don't just go in and, you know, put two plates on the bar right away. Like you want to, you know, sort of slowly work your way up towards it. And then anything over and above that, I, I would have to say would be on a as like prescribed on an as needed basis. So like if you have a specific issue, like maybe you have tight, I don't know, tight adductors or hip flexors or something that you might want to do some specific stretches for just to sort of work those out before you start squatting. Um, I typically will get really tight hip, hip flexors. And I find that if I foam roll those out before squatting, I don't, I don't experience as much pain in those and I can get a little bit more range of motion. Um, and that's about it. I only do foam rolling for specific areas usually, uh, or if I'm feeling particularly tight or sore just in general, I will like foam roll out uh, just because the literature has shown that foam rolling before training doesn't really seem to impair performance, doesn't seem to improve performance. So if, if it helps you at all, then like, yeah, just, I mean, you can do it. Um, and its benefits would be uh, in reducing soreness. It has been shown to, to reduce soreness in at least a few studies and improve range of motion uh, in a few studies. So I don't know. I think foam rolling is overrated, but if you have a specific issue that needs to be addressed, then foam rolling is, a, is an option that's available, yeah. So yeah, just to kind of summarize what I think your main points were, kind of yeah. basically individuality initially. So if you are a very immobile person and you've got exercises that require you to, to get better mobility, then do prioritize it. But if you haven't got that, then the priority becomes get warm, get your mind in the game, and then yeah. get mobile, take things through their full range of motion, and then start warming up with a progressive manner on the bar. And it doesn't need to take all day. In fact, no. it, should, it should be a small part of your workout, not yeah. kind of the main part of your workout. Yeah, um, and the, Gareth yeah. Street. Oh, sorry. No, I was going to say. I think the longest part, if if anything, should take time. It, I think it should be the the uh, general warm up on the elliptical or the bike or whatever. Because I feel like e even some people with that, like they just half ass it. Like they don't actually really get their heart rate up and get a little bit of a sweat going. Um, and I sometimes find that if I'll just do like 10 minutes, maybe even 15 minutes, sometimes I'll feel a lot better going into that training session. That's interesting because I have to say that's something I don't do. And I did yeah. in the past, but really do properly. And like yourself, I do hours at the computer and then go in and I definitely do not have my mind in kind of gym mode. So that's something I'm going to start doing. I'm going to actually start mm -hmm. doing some cardio beforehand just yep. to actually get the for the workout um yeah so yeah gareth street had quite an interesting question saying that uh, how many years of training um and on point nutrition has it taken to achieve your physique currently and uh, what stopped you kind of getting towards temptation towards steroid use potentially okay uh so yeah it's been 10 going on 11 years uh, of training um, to get to where I am right now. Uh, but my physique has looked pretty similar, in my opinion, for the last three or four years. Um, so I think I'm getting to that point now where it's like, you know, it's at that top end of that curve where uh, it's starting to, you know, not fully plateau, but I'm getting diminishing returns. Uh, so for me to get to close to this level, 
I would say probably like maybe like five, five years, something like that, like five, six years of training to get to like a national level caliber, natural physique. Um, but how long it's going to take you is going to depend a lot on how effective your training nutrition protocol is and how well you stick to it. And also how, how, um, how much your genetics allow you to add muscle. Like some people can blow up in one year. Like you see them, they, they pick up weights and then all of a sudden they're like winning bodybuilding shows <laughs> and other people will get to that level. Like they can get there. It just takes way, way longer. And so comparing yourself to me or anyone else is not the most useful way to gauge your specific progress. Um, you just need to figure out a routine that's going to work for you and then just stick to it and then just continue to be patient with it. Um, and consider, you know, reaching out to someone who is an expert and might be able to help you personally. I uh, think, if, if you're, I think that's a great point. I um, think the fact that you, sorry. No, I was going to answer the second part, but go ahead, man. <laughs> oh yeah. I was just going to say the fact you've been, you obviously work your ass off at it. You've had consistent working your ass off at it. And the fact, yeah, you've already stated you have great genetics, so that's going to play a big role in it. And I think for a lot of people, they look towards people like yourself who are in great positions. And yeah, they try and find exactly their blueprint, how they got to where they are today. But you could have maybe not had the best nutrition or the best training, but worked your ass off for a few more years past where you are now and got where you are eventually, mm -hmm. um, yeah. like anyone. So... Yeah, I just thought it's important that people realize that patience, consistency, and hard work go a long way. Oh, yeah, sure. So as for the steroids part of that question, what was it? Um, what, why am I not tempted to use steroids? Or is it? It was what, what drove you to avoid temptations of steroids? That's just kind of assuming you've been okay. tempted. Right. Okay. Well, he, he's right. I definitely like was tempted, especially early on. Um, I actually uh, said to uh, one of my friends at that time who was, he was an enhanced bodybuilder. Uh, he, he basically messaged me and was like, you will win the provincial title if you use this. And I, I responded, I was like, whatever, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. Like I, I, I said it and because at that point in time my scope was so focused on winning that show and like it seems so myopic in retrospect but when you put yourself in 18 year old me like the shoes of 18 year old me who has just been so dedicated to training and nutrition hitting every meal exactly on point you know dieting for the first time and overcoming all the challenges that have to do with that. And then you have this person that you really, really look up to and has this fantastic physique tell you, you just take a little bit of this and this and you win the whole show. You're, you're Mr. <laughs> Mr. Newfoundland, which is like, you know, the, where I was from. Um, then that is like insanely tempting, you know? Um, and just by happenstance, it ended up that I never ended up getting that stuff. Now, if, if I had actually got it and was faced with that like decision, like, do I take this or not? <laughs> um, I don't know if I would have or not, but I do know that at that point in time, 
I wasn't aware of a natural versus enhanced distinction. Like all I knew was that the dudes in the magazine were like really big and really jacked and I wanted to look like them. Um, and I was like, you know, down here at that point in time. And so I very much had that whatever, whatever it takes sort of mentality at that point in time. Um, so yeah, it would have been interesting to see if like the dice had, you know, fallen a different way, what would have happened. But as it happens, I, I, I did end up doing that show naturally. Um, and then it was very soon after that show that I discovered um, that there was such thing as natural bodybuilding and that people were achieving very impressive physiques naturally. Uh, and I discovered guys like Skip Bacor, Jeff Willett, um, who are people that I, I really looked up to um, and, and continue to. I mean, they have fantastic physiques, whether or not they're actually natural. I don't know. We can debate it. But... Uh, at that point in time, um, I decided that I wanted to do it the natural way. And then from there forward, I haven't really been seriously tempted into doing it. Uh, just because, um, I, I guess I, there's no like really like profound reason. Like I'm, I'm not like natural is better on principle or like, it's not like morally better or anything like that. Uh, just because unlike other sports, you have a natural bodybuilding stream and then you have an enhanced stream. So people who decide to take steroids are not cheaters in bodybuilding, but in pretty well all other sports, they are cheaters, right? So there is like a moral component to it. And I feel like that sometimes will get carried over into bodybuilding where people are like, oh, you're like, you're cheating. But it's like, not really, like you're a grown man, you can choose to do what you want, right? Um, but for me, I think it's more so a matter of uh, health. Like I, I am a little bit, concerned about the fact that steroid abuse or steroid abusers do tend to die earlier. They tend to have cardiovascular complications, that sort of thing. Um, some of the other side effects I'm not uh, particularly psyched about, um, that sort of thing. Uh, so there's the health reason. Also, I just, I just don't know. It just, there's just like a feeling. It's like, it, it would just like, I don't know if I could do it. Like I think about like needles and stuff like that. It kind of just like, it kind of like grosses me out. Like, I, I don't know. I, it's just not for me. Um, and then also I, I think I just like the natural look better. Like I like the idea of like, these are the variables that I can manipulate. Like these are my confines. Let's see what I can make of this. Like, let's see what I can yeah. really do with my body naturally. And I think that like that really excites me. And the natural look is like, it's like the old school look, you know, it's like the sixties and seventies type look. It's like with the thin waists and like the nice tapers. And I, I don't know. I, I just like the look better, I guess. And I fear that when you, if I was to like, say take steroids and go in the IFBB, you have to, you have to take it so far in order to get to the top. And at that point, I would just be concerned with my health and then the legal, like the legality of it and all that sort of stuff. I would just rather not personally mess around with that. And then the last thing I'll say on this is that if you are like a young person who is like competing and it seems like that is like the most important thing and like you're putting everything into that and it's like, it's just like the single, um, it's like the thing that you're thinking about constantly and everything in your life is like going towards this goal then like i really think you should consider trying to do it naturally at least 
once or twice, like your first couple of times, just because you don't want to, you don't want to become reliant on a drug to get you in shape. And I find like a lot of people never learn how to actually progressively overload or how to actually structure their diet properly. They become reliant on the drugs. And then when it's time to get in shape again, they just up the dosage again and they never really learn the best way okay. to optimize their training and nutrition. And then also you don't want to be left in a circumstance where you can't compete in a natural organization where there is actually a level playing field because of a, a stupid mistake that you made on a whim, like taking mm -hmm. some drugs for like a show that in the grand scheme of things might not have mattered much. Like that show was like a provincial, provincial show in 2009. If I had taken steroids for that show, I wouldn't have been able to compete and win my pro card in a natural organization for like another eight or nine years or something like that because that's mm -hmm. the, the grace period that's required in the organization I compete in. So you really want to, like, when you're super focused on the one goal, like, take a step back, zoom out, and say, like, okay, 10 years from now, is this really going to be as important to me? And is it worth sacrificing what I could be potentially giving up by doing it? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, taking steroids, I think, should be a bigger bigger decision than it is for a lot of young guys. And, yeah, um, yeah I, I think that from here forward, I'm not really tempted by it. Like, I've built my business and my personal online you know brand and all that kind of stuff by being natural and i just i value it now at this point in in its own right i agree i think so many that's all part of the reason i that well a big part of my target audience are i'm trying to reach guys who are in the gym getting anywhere who are taking this decision to take steroids way too lightly, not researching mm. it. Whereas they should research everything they can do to get muscle, to get where yeah. they want before taking steroids and then research steroids. Maybe if they really, really want to get to that next level, but they need to know then training and nutrition inside out. And then steroids just makes you, makes everything more complicated. So if they're going to hear before they've done the training, the nutrition, the natural way, they're not mm -hmm. going to get anywhere with the steroids, really. Not great results. And that's why you see so many guys who might be taking whatever and not really look anything much. Yeah. Um, so I think that's important. Yeah, and that's the other thing, too. Like, just like genetics are important for training and nutrition, they're also very important in terms of your response to steroids. And I see a lot of guys who get on oh. a lot of gear and they don't get anything more than, like, puffy nipples and a bunch of acne. <laughs> and uh, that's sad, you know. It's like... If, if you yeah. if you had just figured out how to optimize your training and nutrition, then you could have saved yourself a lot of grief and a lot of money and all of that. So, yeah, you, you really need to be prepared. And I, I think in my experience, I think that the best way to tell if you're going to be a good responder to steroids is if you're a good responder to training generally. Like if you look at just Kai Green, for example, like he went to the top of natural bodybuilding in the WMBF before he ever switched to the IFBB and started using and um, I think that that's the way it should go. I think you should at least try to max out your genetic potential naturally first and then consider making the switch yeah. unless you're like young and you definitely know you have really good genetics and you just want to be the next Mr. Olympia. Like someone like Cody Montgomery comes to mind. Like it, I'm not going to say to him that he should probably not have used steroids. Like he's going to be super successful doing what he's doing, but most of the guys that I'm talking to and dealing with 
aren't that, you know, 0.001% of guys. And I think that would, they'd benefit a lot more from trying to do it naturally first. How are we doing for time, Jeff? Are you all right or? Oh man, I'm good. Ah, I, I'm good as long One as you One more are. question or? Yeah, man. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. Um, the next question's pretty, well, it could be controversial depending on how you answer it. Um, so it's, <laughs> I don't know if I'm gonna pronounce this right. Eloy Berlanger basically asks, what do you, they'd like to know your pos, uh, position or opinion on minimum volume to make gains versus kind of maximal volume. So this is kind of Mike is a tells maximal reportable volume he thinks or kind of goes towards we should train towards this maximum amount um, and kind of seek towards that. That's kind of where the best gains are going to be made versus say 3DMJ Eric Helms and his nutritional pyramids where it's if you're progressing then that's great. You don't need to add any more volume. But if you've mm -hmm. stalled then maybe you even need to deload or add more whereas Mike could already be adding more, adding more, adding more, kind of. Yeah, I mean, I, I think personally I'm more attracted towards the, the MRV concept uh, as a bodybuilder just, just because, um, and I think I've heard Mike say this, that if your concern is recovery, then by definition you're capable of recovering from that much volume. So if you could get more gains in a certain time period as a result of doing more volume, then you should do that volume. Like, I don't know if a lot of guys are mm -hmm. wanting to wait just doing minimal effective dose uh, over five years when they could have gotten the same results in four years or three years or whatever. Um, because, you know, where, while patience is important and I always preach patience, um, you should only have to, um, you know, flex the, the patient's muscle as, as much as you you need to and not more, right? Um, so I, I definitely like the, the MRV concept, but my hesitation toward it would be that it's, it's sort of like, to me, it seems like it's a little bit ill-defined. It's like kind of an arbitrary measure. It's like max recoverable volume. Like it's a, sort of a conceptual theoretical thing rather than like an applicable thing. And with that sort of uh, approach, my concern would be that where does max recoverable volume turn into minimum unrecoverable volume? You know what I mean? It's like if you're always pushing that, that boundary between what you can, like the maximum amount of work that you can recover from, how easy is it for you to be to kind of like jump over into non-recoverable territory um i don't know if that like poses like a good counter argument to the mrv concept or not but as a power lifter i think i would more so err towards the uh, minimal effective dose sort of thing because with power lifting i think success is really mostly a function of just not getting injured and making slow progress across your career like guys who want to add I don't know, 100 pounds on their total in six months are the guys who usually do that and then get in injured in the next couple of months, you know? Um, <laughs> so I think that in, in powerlifting, I'd probably err towards the side of if you're making progress, great. Uh, if, if you just add something like 2.5 kilos to each lift, competing three times a year, 
uh, for five years, which is fairly reasonable, like two and a half kilos on a lift is not much. Um, you'd have added something like 500 pounds to your total uh, over the course of those five years, which is huge, right? Um, so I think that slow and steady progress in powerlifting is, powerlifting is important. I think that when you're a bodybuilder, I think that bodybuilders really are able to handle or, or should be handling a lot of training volume. Like, I think that high volume programs have been shown in the research and have been shown anecdotally over the decades to be most effective for building muscle. And with bodybuilding, you have the luxury of being able to vary your exercises. So you're not always actually loading the spine like you are in powerlifting. And I think that you're your susceptibility to injury is a lot lower. And so having some of those phases where you might be overreaching and even doing more volume than you're currently recovering from is actually beneficial for a bodybuilder. Uh, so for a bodybuilder, I think, yeah, I would totally like favor the idea of having them performing as much work as they can possibly recover from. So as to, you know, max out mm -hmm. the, uh, the amount of gains that they can make other than that i mean yeah i think yeah go ahead i was gonna say i think mike talks about kind of you look at what you're doing versus someone else and they're doing twice as much as you and you're like well i could be doing more so why aren't i doing more if they're doing better than me and it although you're not obviously you're comparing but it's kind of like why if you could do more wouldn't you do more um because, yeah, like you said, you'll hopefully see more gains that way. Uh, yeah. And then, like you said, for a power lifter, intensity on the bar is much more relevant to them than volume anyway. So mm -hmm. for the majority of their training, strength-based. So it makes more sense to focus on weight on the bar. But, yeah, I think it's an interesting topic. And I find for myself that I've been able to recover and do a lot more volume since looking at maximal recoverable volume mm. and my training kind of volumes almost probably doubled in the last kind of few weeks and it becomes to a point of how much time do I have rather than how recovered I am because I think I'm I'm probably quite slow twitch but mm. I seem to be able to recover from a lot um, and it, yeah it just becomes a case of maybe one is better for the general pop the fact you can just keep ticking over progression mm. and then the other one is maybe more potentially more optimal, but yeah, it's not a well studied subject or any at all studied really. Yeah. And, and it's, it's sort of just like a, it's like a conceptual thing. Like, is there a way to measure objectively what your max recoverable volume would be? I mean, I, I need to have Mike on my podcast cause I have, I think I have more questions than I do answers about <laughs> this, this topic, but I mean, to me, it seems like, okay, let's say, let's say you can typically squat 405 for five reps. And I don't know, you do X amount of volume, like, I don't know, 30, 30 sets on your, your lower body day or whatever. Um, then not, not for squats, obviously. I also have very high volume sessions. So that number sounds out to whack then. That's why. <laughs> but, um, and then let's say after a couple weeks, you can now only do 405 for three. You probably aren't recovering enough, so you've gone above your, your max recoverable volume. Um, but in terms of like actually tracking what that would be, I feel like that would be a really difficult thing to do in practice. Mm -hmm. So it seems to be a, 
a, a question of principle. And um, if I were to play devil's advocate, I could say, well, over the course of the next five to 10 years, you're probably going to end up at some point where you've, you've maxed out anyway, as long as you're progressing. So the question is, do you want to get there faster and have a more, greater risk of injury? Or do you want to do it more slowly and then be guaranteed to get there safely, basically? Um, and the like conservative coach in me tends to favor the, the slower one because I've seen so many people get injured as a result of just going balls to the wall. And like I said, not being able to, to differentiate between max recoverable volume and then unrecoverable. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And let's say you're wanting to max out the gains that you're getting as quickly as possible while still recovering and you accidentally push it too far and you get injured, that could literally set you back like two, three years or an yeah. entire career. Whereas if you're just slowly making progress, you're going to get there eventually. Then, then the problem with the slow making progress is that it can be demotivating. Like I think I would find it personally demotivating. So mm -hmm. to me, the risk of injury might be worth it to, to bump up the, the volume. Again, another consideration would be, um, can you jump the gun too quick on training volume? Like, let's say you, you're like, I'm doing, I don't know, 40, 40 sets a week or whatever, let's say for legs. And you realize that you could be recovering from 60. Why, um, if, if you jump the gun and go right up to 60, have you now maxed out your volume to the point that progress will slow as a result of that? Like, will your body adapt to that new volume and now not be able to make progressively more gains as a result of it? Um, and I think that I've, I've read this somewhere as being called like the volume trap. It's like people are too, like you have beginners running like Smolov in these like crazy high volume programs. And it's not just an injury risk. It's a fact that they're jumping the gun on so much training that their body's adapting to it. And now they can no longer make mm -hmm. the progress that they would have made if they had just gotten, worked their way up there a little bit more slowly. Um, so it's a really good question. Uh, personally, think, yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think I like the idea that Mike has kind of, he tends to have like 15, rep, uh, 15 sets to 30 sets is like for most body parts, that's what their MRV is. So 15 mm. sets for the quads, 15 sets for kind of the chest. So it might be a nice, well, the way I tend to program now is to get in and around that in kind of a base week and then look at kind of fatigue markers from my clients mm. at the end of the week, at the end of each session, right. see how they're doing, see how sore they are, how kind of quick the bar was going not pushing to MRV at that week and then progressing each week, slowly bring up the volume. So hopefully within kind of four to five weeks, I've got them to that MRV. They're pushing really, really hard, but not so much they're going to get injured, then deload right. afterwards, come out and then go again and build up. That's kind of how I've been playing it. I think I kind of like yourself, like a middle of the ground approach because I think, yeah, you lead into problems otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I actually, I actually do do something similar. I guess uh, I just haven't really, I guess, identified it as one approach or the other. Mm -hmm. uh, but 
Um, I, like I said, I think I, I'd benefit from talking to Mike just to see how it is he quantifies it a little bit better because that's, that's what I think I would struggle with in using this concept as a coach is how do you know whether or not they've reached it and if they've exceeded it, is it, is it too late now or what do you do at that point? Um, I don't know. And, and at some points you, you'd want to, like in an overreaching block, you would want to probably exceed max recoverable volume. So I think it's a, I think it's a good marker to have as like sort of like a top end threshold of around roughly where you want to be in terms of what you're doing. Uh, but yeah, that's a, that's an interesting question. Yeah. I think it's, it's definitely something I'd, I mean, I'd love to see Michael on your podcast and I can't wait to see him over here in the UK. Um, he's coming over in a few weeks, 21st, 22nd, he's here for a seminar, which plug anyone who wants to go, um, definitely get on board. Me and Mike Samuels bringing him and James Hoffman over. And yeah, I mean, I'm hoping lots of people are going to ask very good questions like yourself. And I think it's going to be really, really interesting. Yeah. Um, I think I'm going to have to call it a day there. There are a few more questions, but it's getting a bit late and yep. uh, it's carrying on a little bit. But it's been, like, sure. honestly, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. And I want to make sure everyone knows how to reach you where you are. If you want to give kind of your Facebook, your podcast, and I'll make sure to put them in the description box below. Awesome. Um, so, yeah, first of all, thanks, Steve, for having me. It was a really good time and uh, really good questions from the audience. I appreciate you guys asking those questions and valuing my feedback on it. Um, so in terms of uh, reaching me, uh, you can follow me on Instagram. That's just at Jeff Nippard. Uh, you can request me as a friend still on Facebook. Uh, Facebook, just search Jeff Nippard. Um, there's also my pro bodybuilding page, facebook.com forward slash Jeff Nippard. Uh, you can subscribe to my channel on YouTube. I post the video form of all of my podcasts there. Uh, so that's youtube.com forward slash Jeff Nippard. You can also find the podcast on iTunes. Uh, it's called Ice Cream for PRs with four. I'm working on potentially changing that name. I'm not totally sure on that yet, but regardless, that's where you can find it currently. Um, and I think that that's about it. Awesome. So yeah, definitely guys, subscribe to the podcast. Go through the past episodes. If you liked what we talked about today, You'll absolutely love the podcast and the future episodes that are coming are getting better and better. Some incredible debates and maybe even a debate about MRV in future would be a good one between Eric Helms and Mike Isertel if you could at all set that up. That would be yeah, incredible. That's, um, that's a good so, idea. yeah, cheers, everyone. Thanks. So, yeah, cheers, guys. Take care.